Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. First off, my sincere apologies for listeners who've been waiting since late last year for another episode. But as we finally head to the end of this academic year, I hope I can resume a more regular pace. Today, I'm joined by Alejandra Dubkovsky, and in a first for our podcast, we talked in person in her office on the campus of Yale University earlier this week. That's because I'm a graduate student here, and Alejandra is assistant professor in the Department of History. Receiving her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in 2011, Professor Dubkovsky has published articles in Ethnohistory, the William and Mary Quarterly, Native South, and other places. But it's her incredible new book, just out from Harvard University Press, that we discussed. Informed Power, Communication in the Early American South, takes us deep into a world many of us will find uh, unfamiliar and asks some unique and provocative questions. This region lacked a regular mail system or even a single printing press until the 1730s, two centuries after the first forays of the Spanish Empire. But this was no uninformed backwater. Indigenous peoples hailing from a multitude of nations who overwhelmingly outnumbered settlers well into the 18th century blazed trails, sent out couriers, marked trees and stones, selectively passed messages between competing empires, and engaged in methods sometimes ingenious, other times wholly accidental, to establish themselves as central actors in a diverse and often violent world. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome, Professor Dubkowski, to the very first in-person podcast interview for new books in Native American Studies. We usually conduct these interviews at great geographical distance, sometimes relying on intercontinental communication networks. Um, but because we are both at Yale University, we get to do this in person, an ironic fact for a discussion about information traveling over great and uncertain distances. Um, I want to start where you do in Informed Power, with the Stono Rebellion in September of 1739. Historians of the colonial South are quite familiar with this uprising of enslaved African people in the colony of South Carolina. We know the story, a group of slaves near Charlestown revolt, kill about 20 white people, destroy several plantations, head south for Spanish Florida, and are all caught. But you ask a question that really should have occurred to people a long time ago, and when you ask it on page one, it's like, Right, of course, which is, how the heck did the slaves know to march south, and how did they know if they reached Spanish Florida, they would be free? So um, you can answer those questions, but I'm also just curious how you came to ask that type of question, because I think it's central to your project here. Thank you so much, Andrew, and thank you for, it's really nice to be talking to you in person about communication and personal face-to-face communication as well. 
So the story I begin and the book I begin with that question of how how the heck did these slaves know to go south? And I had this striking suspicion that it wasn't their masters who was who were telling them, you know, if you just walk 250 miles south, you're going to be free. So if it wasn't them, uh, how is it that uh, these the slaves knew to march south? So that question actually began because I was trying to do a project on colonial South Carolina, on the Stoner Rebellion itself, trying to understand violent forms of resistance. And I am not from South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I do not know South Carolina. Actually, I knew very little of the American South. So I just kept putting maps up on my wall just to figure out where, you know, where Berkeley County was, where, you know, Stoner was, or all these places. And I just was very struck by the movement of people, how much people were moving, how much they seemed to know about places that on the map looked really far away. So it was really a question that came out of not at all knowing the region that forced me to ask a seemingly simple question that pushed me really farther back in time and into native history and into places and spaces that I was really unfamiliar with. And really to answer that question of uh, how did this group of slaves know about Spanish Florida in 1739 really opened the conversation of actually, how does anyone know anything in the colonial world? Um, so that that's how that, that it really it was a really small question that opened up a much larger uh, problem in colonial America. And I'm guessing the answer is Google Maps on your smartphone. Completely. Right? Google right. Maps. Uh, I wish. I mean, I think they wished. Uh, but I think that gets to the question of, you know, what are the mediums that are available for people to know anything in the colonial world? And the assumptions that I had was that no one knew anything in colonial America, that they like operated with tiny, limited versions of information and just had to make decisions knowing almost nothing. And it turns out that that's not true. Uh, people knew a great deal. I mean, they, they didn't have Google Maps. They didn't know how far away some places were. But they they did know far more than we know when we sort of assumed that they know. And they made very smart decisions with the knowledge that they had. It wasn't perfect. They had to. It was ever changing. It was dynamic. All the sort of things we associate with information today, in many ways, that it's sort of overwhelming and vast. But that's sort of the same kind of problems they had. They had to know a great deal about a great many things and had to figure out how to sort it and put it in order. So for slaves to know about Spanish Florida, they had to sort of know about Indian past that connected them to Spanish Florida. They had to know something about Spanish. They had to know about sort of the relationship to Spanish and the English. So it just, to know these little, little facts, these like layers upon layers of what people had to begin to understand of this world becomes are visible. And that was really exciting to me, not about how one particular news or item traveled, but how people became informed and made sense of their world. So the colonial South uh, before the middle of the 18th century uh, is an unfamiliar world for many of us, uh, maybe most of us, maybe the <laughs> overwhelming majority of us. Um, part one of Informed Power is titled Making Sense of La Florida, 1560s to 1670s. Um, so I'm hoping you can Help us out a little um, and, and just kind of introduce us to this region um, before 1560. Um, how do you characterize it? What Indian peoples are living there? Um, and, and then finally, what brings European empires here? So the the early South, I mean, this is an exciting world filled with people and filled with uh 
Native people who we don't we know little about, and I often joke with my students when I lecture about this part of the world that I call them the ungoogleable Indians mm-hmm. because even if you Google them today, you find nothing, and that really tends to shock my students. That if you Google Ispo, you come up with nothing. Like mm-hmm. they surely we can't know anything about them if Google doesn't render me this information. <laughs> but uh, but that gets to the idea that these are not even names we recognize. When I say Creeks, uh, many of us have sort of some semblance of who the Creeks even are to, are today, or some idea of removal, but. When I say Tumukwa, or when I say Wale, or when I say I, you know, Calusa, I get sort of some strange looks. And when I say study Florida and I don't study the Seminoles, it's even sort of just more shocking, this idea that I'm studying an earlier moment and period in time. Um, so I think I think I'm with these people. This is a strange sort of world that we need to – there's still so much work that needs to make sense of it. The, this, the, the story, I, I, you know, you can begin as earlier in time as you want. I keep going back earlier and earlier. Um, the book itself sort of begins with Cahokia to ground a little bit of the Mississippian chiefdoms and sort of hierarchical societies and really large organized societies that existed before European contact, but not to really focus on 900, but to focus on the period before European colonization, to begin to understand – what's going on in North America before Ponce de Leon makes it to Florida. And I think for me, that's important not just to say, look, Native people were here and they had a history, which of course they do, but to understand that these complexities that these Native people have are going to just shape the way colonization is going to happen or not happen in certain areas. So I think laying that groundwork, although it might seem like, why is she taking us back so far in time is really to show that these layers that in my case, that these paths are sort of instrumental. So who I'm talking about primarily are groups in, in present day Florida. These are Tumuqua, Wale and Apalachee Indians and some Indians in Southern Florida, the I and uh, Calusa. I mean, there, there's just a, a wider range of people and smaller groups within those groups themselves. Um, so these are just the, the, and there's a large number of people. I mean, Tumuqua, the, I mean, this is always a question we want to have. How many people are there before European colonization? But the numbers seem huge. They're in the hundreds of thousands, mm-hmm. uh, especially of Tumukwa. So these are large, large native uh, polities, native uh, groups that are have many different languages and many different forms of dealing with each other. Not always peaceful. Not always, you know. So I think it's a it's a really complicated uh, native space before uh, the Europeans arrive and begin giving us records for it. one of my. Uh, most fascinating little tidbits of information that comes from this is that in 1513, which is when Ponce de Leon sails to Florida, I know, searching for the Fountain of Youth. Not really. He wasn't looking for the Fountain of Youth. That comes later um, in imaginations of his voyage. But um, when he gets there, he encounters Indians that already speak Spanish. This is 1513. This is before Cortez goes to Mexico. This is before the Incas. This is so... How, how did that? How is that possible? Uh, from Cuba and Española. Right. So Native people are moving in these spaces and communicating with each other, telling them about the Spanish, and also picking up these languages. And that's barely 20 years after Columbus. Yeah. So this is like a, a world that's uh, sort of, even before sort of official, the settling of uh, Spanish St. Augustine and uh, the establishing of St. Augustine in, in 1565, you have sort of voyages into the southeast by the Spanish. You have Ponce de Leon. Briefly, he barely makes it in, inland in either of his voyages. But then you have these really large expeditions into uh, into Florida. You have Hernando de Soto that goes in with 800 people. I mean, these are huge expeditions that march through the through the region. You have the Tristan de Luna, the site that has just recently been found, like last year, which is the big gap in the geography. He goes in 1559, uh, and he takes 2,000 people. I mean, these are gigantic, gigantic expeditions that the Spanish are sending, and they all fail. 
miserably. And perhaps the most famous one is uh, Panfino de Narvaez, who goes with uh, Cabeza de Vaca. And we, because Cabeza de Vaca leaves this uh, great diary of his uh, expedition, we know. But so there are these like continual voyages into uh, Florida, these efforts to uh, conquer and figure out this region. And they all fail just miserably and they find no gold. So you have these very large expeditions in the, in the 16th century that just seem to kill everyone. Um, so Florida just seems like an awful place to go. That's not going to attract any European uh, ventures into it. And then the French set up shop and that just really changes everything for the Spanish. You write at some point that uh, Florida was a magnet for destruction, failure, and death. <laughs> but people kept coming. People kept coming. And I think part of that is um, the lore that they could, you know, now we know that there's no, you know, there was no next Aztec empire that was waiting. But if you think about it, uh, they didn't know there was going to be a next Aztec Empire, and then they found the Incas, you know, the Spanish find. So, I mean, there's the idea that if they could find the Aztec Empire with all this gold, if they could find the Inca, why not a third? You know, this is not a sort of crazy logic. And uh, Hernando de Soto goes there in 1540. So it's right there in the midst of all this. So there's the idea that there could be more. And there's also the strategic location of Florida. Sort of every ship that's sailing away from the Caribbean back to Europe needs to pass through Florida. So Having an outpost in this coast is very advantageous, uh, and it's also really good because it's really dangerous water, so lots of ships tend to just not make it past the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. So also, it's a great site to wreck ships that have just not made it through, so to, to save survivors, more importantly, save the, the loot that was from the ships. So Florida has this strategic uh, position that everyone sort of recognizes, but the fact that there's no sort of monetary gain that can be gained immediately, and especially when you have silver mines and gold coming out from Mesoamerica, there's no real want for Florida. But when the French set up a colony there, a really short-lived, disastrous colony, I think that really prompts the Spanish to say, no, 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 there's really nothing there for us, but we don't want the other guys. Yeah. <laughs> and it was always, I mean, it wasn't about setting up plantations or some sort of extractive industry. I think they tried. The La Luna expedition, I think, really tries. I mean, 2,000 people. I mean, this is a different kind of venture than we sort of imagine the conquistadors there. They're, they're going with families. They're going there to plant. It just, they get hit by a hurricane within like the first month. They get all wiped out. They can't find food. They can't, So, I mean, that fails so miserably uh, that they never send enough they never sent enough people back to Florida ever again. I mean, I think at its height, Florida has in the period that I'm sending uh, 1,500 people. I mean, this is a tiny, mm -hmm. that's the thing always to remember that this is a tiny European outpost from which we have most of the records because these are European sources in an entirely native controlled space. So although the sources come from there and I can help as a historian create the story from the outpost, for me, it's imperative to remember that this is a tiny blip in a much larger world. Well, this is something I wanted to ask you about, too, because I was in, in, in hearing you talk about your book um, before reading it. I, I was remembering something that I heard uh, Peter Wood once say about how he came to write Black Majority on slavery in colonial South Carolina, which was, you know, I think it was a dissertation in the 60s in Margaret. And he was just like, I looked at the demographics yeah. and there's a story there. There were more black people than white people. Absolutely. That's a story. And it seems like you had a similar realization here, too, when you compare these strips of settler populations to a vast indigenous world. Yeah. What was that sort of process for you to come to that? And how did that change your project? It's funny because I read Peter Wood. <laughs> That's, yeah. I read actually not just the black majority, but his Powhatan's mantle with the demography. And that just really 
that really blew my mind. I mean, I think because as historians, we're trained to read documents. That's what I'm trained to do. I was reading Spanish produced and English produced sources describing their efforts. And I, I guess I knew that they were native people. I wasn't sort of blind, but I, I, I'm reading their voices through them. So really, it really takes a moment and a deep breath to think about, wait, <laughs> I am reading through them, but all they're describing is not actually in their control or even in their influence. This is all sort of native controlled spaces. And actually, you don't have to read that hard to begin finding those things. It's, it's sort of amazing to me when you see it, it's like everywhere. You cannot, you cannot unsee native people once, I hope, once you begin to see them, that they're, mm-hmm. they're really, they're really everywhere. And at least for the Spanish, because they don't set up in Florida, uh, mi- uh, they don't set up settlement, they set up missions. The centrality of Native people is, is key because they're not there to missionize Spanish colonists. They're there to missionize Native people. Mm-hmm. So in, in the main Spanish effort in Florida, which, eat, which are these missions, all they're there to do, in theory, is to interact with Native people and convert them and the like. But so all these records are about who these Native people are, uh, you know, from lists of with names. I mean, the Spanish are great because they record names, they record all these things. So um, it really, I mean, it's very hard not, I mean, you can tell a story about the missionizing effort, but who they're missionizing, thinking about what they're doing gets us to think about the Native people. So you write, um, I think you're writing in this moment on the pre-colonial world, but it has applications once we get into this kind of competition of empires that, um, that by focusing on the modes and techniques that Indians developed to acquire and spread information, we can see a world that was not only intricately connected, but also incredibly dynamic. And I was just wondering if you could give us a couple examples of those modes and techniques yeah. um, in the pre-colonial world that, that persist, or, and, and then also how you figured that out. Yeah. Um, in the, you know, there are no documentary records before as you say, European outposts. So what are some of these modes? So that's, you know, I always want to know, like, what were they talking about? Yeah. And I'm not going to have any records for that. So there, there's some, there's some ways to do this. I do this, uh, I do this by looking at, for example, at paths and looking at which paths are, how are paths maintained? Because it struck me when I was reading the Soto or reading any of the early Spanish documents from the 16th century that oftentimes they say, you know, we're completely lost in the wilderness. We're, and it became clear to me, I could discern the moments when they were truly lost and the moments where they were just complaining. And it became really clear because when they made progress, they were actually on a native path. Mm-hmm. And when they were just not making, when they were like not traveling more than like a mile every they were day, just walking right into the woods, they were <laughs> in the swamps, you yeah, know, they the were not. So it became very clear that there, there were these, there were these paths that were clearly maintained, whether European eyes were seeing them or not, they were, they were there. And often they remark about how, how, how native people kept these paths open. I mean, there's lots of indications of painting paths red as a way to show that these paths are closed. I mean, there are these, these graphic moments in which the, the Spanish encounter Bodies, Spanish bodies dug up and put all alongside the path as a way to say this path is closed. And there's lots of indications that sort of similar ways of painting paths red were existed pre sort of pre uh, Spanish um, entradas and also um, making them open, putting food food offerings, um, showing that peace, not war, sort of welcome. So that that's sort of a way to to see what people were doing in the maintaining of this path. And also, you know, when you look at the archaeological record, things like uh, the build, like the bearing of war clubs, you know, when you see people buried alongside military weapons. Well, on the one hand, that tells you that militarization was something that was deeply valued if you're going to be buried along with that uh, artifact. And when you see also that coupled with 
graves that have more and more traumatic death <laughs> and causes of death that are all violent induced, you, you start seeing, okay, violence and war and communicating that becomes a very clear thing. So I find it not in a written word because I don't have things from Cahokia that are written down, but in reactions to events or, or like the building of palisades and forts. You only build a fort if something is going to be attacked. So you, there are ways in which you can read sort of backwards and forwards from the sources themselves. And then it's in these really early documents in the 1500s where the Spanish for the first time are seeing these native communities and uh, commenting upon their practices that I'm yeah, assuming these practices are in effect before, you know, that this is not the first time they manifest them, manifest themselves, uh, counting sticks, you know, there's, there's moments of knots as a way to keep track of time. There's all these sort of little things that the, that the Spanish uh, sort of note that native people are doing to interact with one another. And so once you have, um, this world formally um, part of an imperial competition in some, in some ways. Um, you, you mentioned the French try to set up shop briefly. It changes how the Spanish relate to that place. And then some decades later, British colonies, yeah. at least in the Carolinas. Yeah. Um, this maybe is a big question because it, it's essentially a whole part of your book. But, you know, what role, um, if you can generalize or maybe give a couple examples, do indigenous peoples who are in this dynamic no networked world play in that imperial competition yeah so i mean physically they're they're right in the middle right so north the english set up in south carolina in 1670 according to this imperial treaty they're supposed to be non-aggressive partners to one another that does not last for like a second the english and the spanish are in perpetual war with one another in the in the south uh and Native people is smack down in the middle of these these spaces in what will become Georgia play an instrumental role in sort of linking these these groups together and letting the Spanish know about the English and the English know about the Spanish. And also what, what was striking to me, it wasn't just that. Like I can tell you, I can tell you great anecdotes of sort of native informers. I have these sort of the great I have a great moment about this particular cacica who plays sort of a dual role, the cacica of Pabini, who goes back and forth informing the Spanish about the is a chief is that she she was she's a fantastic character i think um super understudied and everywhere in the sources uh she appears from 1670 to 1672 just two years in the spanish sources she's a chiefess uh of this group that really seems to have come together right at this moment and the way she's able to retain the autonomy of her her people is really by um using information she says to the spanish i can tell you about the english if you sort of protect me and she tells the english i can tell you about the spanish if you sort of provide me goods and for about two years she's able to play both sides uh off each other which is sort of this sort of great moment in a moment of time where most of the towns in georgia are either being attacked or relocating she's able to sort of retain that autonomy and it seems very small and brief but it's it's actually quite impressive and she uses what the only thing she has very basically at her disposal which is sort of because she's in the middle to parlay with both sides and able to retain that. But I think to me, what's most striking is not just that native, that Europeans, that the Spanish and the English are using native peoples as informers is that they depend on native people to tell them about other Europeans. I think that was for me, it's just shocking that to learn about the English, the Spanish have to talk to Indians that to learn about the Spanish, the English have to talk to Indians. So it's like Indians are telling Europeans about other Europeans. That to me, is just sort of mind blowing about how this world was going to be interacting with each other. And that also that it's not permanent, that this association of Indians with news is something that's always very tense and always up for ne- sort of negotiation. Uh, in 1678, I have this moment where um, um, the, the South Carolina governor encounters a group of Indians and asks them about the Spanish. 
And then a European trader says, no, 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 I can tell you about him in better detail. And so these Indians are pushed aside. And so there's this moment where Native people who are in the middle are seen as, wait, our role was to be the informers. And here we're being pushed aside. And they're, they're going to fight for that ability to retain being informers because that allows them to have power between the Spanish and the English. But that this is not a given category. That this is always up for grabs who has the best information and how um, they can use that. So I think... Uh, the presence of the English just adds another dimension and also pushes a lot of Native people who did not want to be missionized, who had stayed away from the Spanish sphere of influence into contact with another European power. So you have groups like the Creeks, you have groups like the Yamasee, who had some contact with the Spanish, but it was very tepid, now really entering into sort of a, a sort of a colonial encounter that they had sort of not had until the, the 1670s. Are you able to find um, examples of Native informers or uh, communicators or uh, who are influencing, changing, manipulating the information they receive from one colonial power and what they're delivering to another in such a way that benefits them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I talked about the Kasikap Mamini, but this is one thing she does. I, I think even before her, there are these Indians or the poor royal Indians um, who are telling the Spanish, oh, you should stay really you should stay you shouldn't come north. You shouldn't come anywhere near South Carolina. The English are just super fierce. If you come near them, they're going to they're gonna kill you. You just stay where you are. And um, basically other Indians are like, no, there's like 300 you know, English. They're, they're just telling you that because they, they don't want you anywhere. You know, so there's lots of moments where um, misinformation as well as information gets played. Uh, and Native people are very aware uh, that this is something that they have that they can control. And often because eyewitness information is so privileged, the ability of someone to travel and have seen the settlement or have seen the little European hub firsthand is so valued. And the Spanish are not doing that. They're relying on Native people to do that and vice versa. The English are not making all the, all the way to St. Augustine. They're depending on that. So that it, it's up for grabs what, what, what they choose to describe. Mm -hmm. And you say, uh, and you can already see the seeds in this of what you're describing, that an information race develops. You have a chapter called the information race. What do you mean by that? Oh, that was like, that's, I, I often call it the chapter that no one will read because it's like a case study, but I love it. It was one of my favorite chapters to write um, because that's like chronicling the, the stories of three, the three powers, the French, the Spanish and the English to make sense of the region. That's not the coast, basically, <laughs> to make sense of not the coastal area, but what the Spanish are calling La Tierra Dentro, which literally just means the land inside. That's what they call basically everything that's not the coast, what the French are beginning to call, you know, the Louisiana the greater Louisiana and what the English are calling the backcountry and what Appalachians are calling their home. So, you know, it's to make sense of this region. Um, they understand that they need to know what the heck it is, where it is, where are the paths, where are the towns. They don't know anything. And this is this is late. This is 1700s and they're still figuring this out. Um, so when we're confused about this world, I take comfort in that they were confused about that. The, they being the Europeans are confused about about this world. So this information race uh, becomes an effort to figure out who's going to be their allies, where which are the paths that they're going to be able to travel uh, in a reliable, functional way. And the Spanish are watching sort of South Carolina influence in the region. And part of the influence is because uh, they're coming with 
better European goods to trade. They're coming with guns. So they're willing to trade that the Spanish are never willing to trade. The Spanish never trade guns. They have very limited guns, but they also don't trade them with native people. And the English don't come um, trying to missionize native people. So it's a different kind of relationship that they forge with them. So you have South Carolina trying to make it past the coastal groups, trying to expand into the creeks, trying to expand, get some influence with the Chickasaws, uh, maybe even the Choctaws. And the the Spanish are trying to block that in any way, shape that they can. And they've tried missionization and they try sending someone to figure out. And, and so you see two, two competing strategies uh, going to the exact same towns. So uh, this is an amazing moment where the Spanish, this this horrible Spanish lieutenant who just makes one incompetent decision after the other, who gets to a town and gets greeted by a letter written in English by Woodward saying like, na 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 you missed me. Um, better luck next time. And it's this, this incredible moment of you just seeing like where, how valued these little towns, these seemingly small towns are to these empires to try to figure out what this world is and what they can do in it. Hmm. I want to ask a sort of unrelated question about the um, historiography of this region. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'm not deeply familiar with it, but um, certain sort of heuristic devices have bubbled up in the literature, a shatter zone, Mm -hmm. ethnogenesis, um, you know, the Indian's new world. Um, I'm wondering if any of those, kind of terms or concepts speak to you in the world that you're seeing. The one I really was curious about was the shatter zone. Um, this idea that when the Spanish and other colonial empires came in and the slave trade started, you had just destruction, chaos, and then the, the sort of seeds of ethnogenesis. But does this speak to you, that sort of literature? I mean, I think this is Robbie Etheridge, and her work is so, so instrumental. I mean, it's just always like, you're so glad those books exist and you're like, thank goodness someone did that book, for right. me, that work for me. Right. <laughs> I can just, she wrote it for me. She doesn't know this, but, <laughs> but she really did. But no, they, they clearly, the, those terms really clearly speak to me. Um, the reason I hesitate with information because what I was seeing is I was seeing destruction and violence. And actually the more work I keep doing on the, on the Indian slave trade, the more I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around the incredible level of violence. And this violence is spreading far wider than we have chronicle today. So I, I'm just, I'm very persuaded that this is an incredibly violent moment of time that um, disrupts all these uh, sort of things that had been in play before. That being said, a lot of paths are kept up during this disruptive moment. A lot of communication networks don't change. Um, so there's a lot of sort of, there's another story, I think, that's not just destruction, but how people sort of negotiate that. And I don't mean just by 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 some by ethnogenesis or by coming together in new sort of forms or um, coalescing into newer politics or forming new identities, but so how they're preserving things that had worked in the past, sort of avenues of power at play. So I think for me, I see that definitely, and I don't, and I don't think I dispute it uh, at all. I think it, it serves me kind of well that people have said this is an incredibly disruptive and violent moment of time. And I think for me, what's interested is interesting is well, how do people make sense? make sense of the world else as that is going on. And for me, um, sort of the Yamasee war that comes towards the, the very end of my book um, in 1715, this massive war that happens in South Carolina where Yamasees and Lower Creeks um, sort of push to the breaking point in their relationships with the English, wage a war against them. What you're able to see is how important these communication networks are in them organizing the war um, and in them attacking. So they really strategically attack 
every English note that they can. So the English begin waging a war in the dark. But that shows me that by 1715, these these things are are, are still at play, even though they've undergone so much um, trauma and reorganization. People have retained sort of key notes of power and key talents have become sort of have retained sort of that. So I, I think... I think it serves. I think I, I think I even say this world's shattering apart, so I don't shy away from that at all. But I, I keep wondering, you know, sort of what is not what is the violence that's being inflicted on Native people, but how Native people are dealing with it. I think that to me is a more for me because because Robbie has done this amazing work. I can get I get to ask that other question: How Native people then deal with it? Talking about the field still a little bit about where it might go. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think is so um, incredible about this book and, and work in this field is that. You know, I think for a lot of us who work on later centuries, there's this kind of fast-forwarding effect that happens with the 16th century in particular, but also the 17th century. No! <laughs> but, I mean, to some degree. But then you, you stop and think about the, the, the gaps in time between Columbus, the first, you know, incursions into this world, the first attempts at proper settlement, the first permanent settlements... And then a long time, and then more settlements. I mean, this is a... We're talking on the scale of centuries. Centuries, yeah. Centuries. And centuries that are, in the historical imagination, for many people, empty. Besides yeah. these dates that stick out. Yeah. St. Augustine. Yeah. Jamestown. Georgia. Whatever. Yeah. Yamazee War. Hopefully, right? Hopefully. Hopefully. But, not even. Yeah. Um, so, as you've done so much work to make this blank space denser... Um, where do you think things are going in this field? I mean, for me, I I, I always keep hoping that that it gets even. I mean, for me, I'm like, oh no, I've I've done centuries. There's there's so much work in each of these little sections that could be done. Of course, we we see this in our sources. I'm you know I'm hoping there's a lot. There's so much so much Spanish language sources on these native peoples that like that we know so little about that we could know so much more. I mean, there, um, Tumukwa, we, there, there's, they have the most sort of robust native language materials that we have available for this. And there's almost no work done on them. I think now the university of Florida is going to digitize and, uh, a collection that's also a uh, translations of these sources. So I, I'm really hopeful that that sort of Spanish paleography is hard. 16th century hand is awful. But I think the fact that some of these things are going to go up online and they're going to be translations of the actual documents, I think it's going to help sort of open that and show just the breadth of that field. So I'm hoping more exploration um, will come and uh, sort of in earlier <laughs> in earlier centuries at, at as well. Um, I'm hoping, I mean, I've seen that sort of native field in the in native history Taught, begin to do biographies of Native people. Um, there's one, there's a biography of Mary Musgrove, which is fantastic. But to think more about getting individual peoples and names. So we're not talking about Timucuas, but we can talk about Satoriba. We can talk about, so we can say Powhatan and that name has sort of like a connotation. We can have an idea, even perhaps it's wrong, but um, Uncas, I don't know. I'm just thinking of, sure, uh, yeah. but I think beginning to populate these stories with um People and name and dates even um, that are not sort of Eurocentric are so are so important for me. When I was looking at this, I'm like, oh gosh, this native rebellion is actually far more important than um, this other date that I have about when the Spanish set up shop in Appalachia. So thinking about that chronology, um, sort of broadening and and adding to that chronology and adding to the list of players. And really thinking about um, if we think, I think early America has really grown in uh, in Native history. Has really sort of is one of the most booming and most exciting parts of early American history, in my opinion, right now. And I think 
this is an area that still needs so much work. So I hope that it just attracts. Uh, I've seen stuff on the Shawnee, really exciting things on the Shawnee recently. And I keep hoping, keep coming south, keep coming south. And I think there's just lots of really great work on 19th century Cherokee and Choctaw and sort of that thinks about removal and what it means for. And I think there's a really interesting earlier story about uh, these communities uh, and these peoples and these languages. So I think there's there's a lot to be done in sort of tracing that uh, further back and thinking about that. So I'm hoping it stays. I mean, I see it's sort of a booming, uh, obviously, um, forward in time. But I, I hope that by uh, by at least me giving names and people and dates, I open up. I, I don't I hope that this is not the end. I hope someone says, she only talks for one page about this rebellion. This is not okay. Like I'm, I'm like, yes, go do your work on that. I have, I have rebellions, entire rebellion. No one has ever written on. I have sources like this. I'm like, I always talk about them. I'm like, you want to write about the Appalachian rebellion? I can give you everything I have because that's, that's my hope. That's my, that's what I would love to see. So, I mean, given the fact that this world is maybe distant and foreign to us in the historical profession and the public, um, uh, that would, I think, it would. This would not be the first book that people would say, "Oh, here's a book with something to say about the mo- like today's world, <laughs> today's digital network world of instant communication, mm-hmm. um, and that communication producing just troves of data of around which there's this big debate over mm-hmm. who accesses it and how." A couple of years ago, uh, when you were putting the finishing touches on this book, or in some part of the process of this book, you penned a, an op-ed in Al Jazeera actually making that case in the context of these fights around private data, mm. I think, and data collection. What is that case to be made about how, what this book can tell us about some of our communication debates today? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, this book comes in 2016 because I exist in 2016, because I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and I think about information every day. And I, you know, I use Google, I use Wikipedia. So I think it's not, I didn't write this in a vacuum thinking, oh, I'm so, I'm so, I'm such a genius to think about information as a priority. Um, I think about it as a priority because I exist in this moment of time. So I'm curious about um, if this was an issue or this was, and I think my, like I said, my biggest surprise was that in fact, people thought a great deal about information um, in earlier moments of time. And I think for me, the takeaway lesson is that there's lots of complaints uh, as we as 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 governments start to make decisions about peoples and regions they know little about and they're trying to make policies on them and say well it was imperfect we had imperfect information and I think well <laughs> let me tell you about decision making with imperfect information so I think for me it was seeing. Uh, a world in which people understood that they had rather imperfect information, but they were trying to do things not to make it more perfect, but to make it legible for themselves. So I think for me that the, the takeaway story is that technology is not the whole answer. Because here, I, I part of the reason why the brackets of my book is because I wanted to tell a story of information that wasn't about technology, that wasn't about, well, here comes the printing press and here comes, you know, the mail and here comes, you know, Google that's going to tell, give you this chronology. I want to tell this sort of moment of time where that's not the sort of technology is not going to be the thing that's going to revolutionize the story. So if it's not going to be more Twitter feeds or more, you know, or more um, access to the internet, that's going to sort of revolution. So it's not technology that's the drive of the story. It's thinking about how people process and make decisions with information. And I think that for me is a takeaway that Although we often tend to talk about information in very abstract ways, we tend to give information lots of agency. News moves freely um, and things like that. I think that is really dangerous. I think we're forgetting the human element and human decision making that comes in what news moves to who and how. And I think for me, that's 
like the in, like the historian in me always looks at that when things like pe- things move freely. I go, no, you know, who moved them? Who created that? You know, and I think that that's a really important reminder is that this, in fact, although it seems to be we live in an information age and a technology age, we still live in a human age. We still live in a people age. And to making sense that and, and technology is a reflection of our, our limits and our abilities. Not it doesn't exist beyond people. It shows you what we can do, what we can think of. So I think um, I think that for me is a takeaway is thinking about the human element in information and not that it exists aside mm-hmm. of it. In the colonial world, it's rather easy, right? Because it has to be face-to-face or it has to be based on a human interaction. Um, so I'm more reminded of that than we are perhaps today when we sort of send a tweet. But I think I think about that all the time. So I know you just finished this incredible book. It's an <laughs> achievement. You deserve rest Woo! and uh, celebration. But um, before I let you go... Um, I wanted to ask a bit about what you're working on next, and I'm particularly intrigued that you are dabbling in archaeology, perhaps. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering if, uh, before we, we uh, end our discussion today, if you can tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Yeah, so I think I'm going to lose my historian card of residence because I'm dabbling. I'm, I'm having I'm having affairs with other disciplines, <laughs> as I like to say. I'm having a fling. Um, no, so I've been I've been thinking. Uh, one of the projects I've been thinking a lot is about archaeology. I, I inadvertently found uh, an archaeological collection that Yale had in its in its in the Peabody Museum that really opened up a story about sort of South Florida, and that really threw me as, as a historian of the American South. I've had the privilege of always engaging with archaeology, but never had the responsibility of beginning with archaeology linguistics always served as a way to supplement my story and here i was faced with a primarily non-written uh, archive and how do i as a historian train to read documents make sense of it so i think the methodological problem interests me as much as the field and the findings themselves so i think that and hopefully all these new projects this these side projects these flings are all collaborative I'm, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply belie- a believer in collaborative research. I am not an archaeologist. I'm a historian who thinks deeply about it, but I don't have a PhD in archaeology. I can never, I don't know the historiography, the archaeology historiography. So I depend on collaborative research. So this endeavor is going to be done alongside a, a team. I'm hoping I'm going to be digging the summer alongside a team and all done is that in collaboration. Um, so to say I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, I'm barely an inter, I'm, I'm, I, I strive to be one. So that's one thing that I'm doing is sort of thinking through archaeology, South Florida, and then whatever they allow me to keep doing and thinking through. And then also a linguistic project, thinking through the Timucua language um, with Aaron Broadwell, who's at the University of Florida, who's just fantastic. And he's the premier linguistics on Timucua. And so working with him through these texts and me knowing the history, him knowing the linguistics has been just opening my mind to what these documents can reveal. But those are like the side projects in terms of my own personal intellectual historical project. Um, I'm thinking of exploring uh, the war of Spanish succession or Queen Anne's war. So the period between 1702 and 1713, I know that sounds very narrow, especially when I've just done a book that's like 300 years, but it's really thinking about all these isolated moments of time um, and thinking about how they come together, thinking about the slave rates, thinking about the attacks, all these little incidents and how they, they can be grouped together and what that can tell us about maybe perhaps a continental history and Atlantic history. I don't really know. It's really way too early. <laughs> well, that sounds like uh, three really fruitful <laughs> directions to go after this. Too many, book. too many. Uh, I've been talking with Alejandra Dukowski. She's the author of Informed Power, Communication in the Early American South. It's just out from Harvard University Press. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my conversation with Alejandra Dubkovsky, Associate Professor of History at Yale and author of Informed Power, 
Communication in the Early American South from Harvard University Press. You can listen to all of the past interviews at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or through iTunes free of charge. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at newbooksnatam. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks so much for listening.